0: Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. A couple of weeks ago, we had some new folks um, join for the first time my gospel community. Which, if you didn't know, we, uh, we have three small groups. Um, we call them gospel communities because we want them to be a community um, of brothers and sisters centered on the gospel. Um, that's the core, the center. And uh, we had some new folks there. And when, whenever that happens, I kind of like to, you know, not quite icebreaker, but throw out a question to help us have some fun and get to know each other. It tends to be lively for us. And, and so I asked, hey, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And so we went around the circle just talking about, like, if we could have a kind of power, a superpower, what it would be. And considering that I had just spent maybe a couple hours, you know, like changing diapers, doing dishes, and cleaning up and putting kids to bed, my superpower was this, quick to clean. I would be able to, in a snap of a finger, clean everything, everywhere, with no effort whatsoever lifting a finger. I I would just be like, bam, dishes away, food all over the floor gone, like that's, that's what I would do. Um, now the rest of the group sort of put me to shame in terms of what I wanted. I mean, people wanted to be able to fly, like someone else wanted teleportation, they could just, you know, hop down to the Bahamas for lunch. And then, and then someone finally kind of got to the heart of it, right? And they said, well, if I could really have any power, I, I would want to be able to, to solve conflict in a way that brings peace to the world. And I'm going, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. Quick to clean's not looking so hot anymore. Um, peace, goodness, rightness in the world. Okay, that, that's probably what, what power should be used for. Um, and, it, and it was almost like we chuckled, but that person tapped into the heart, sort of the, a core longing that a lot of us have. Like we, we walk through the world with this sort of, unshakable desire for things to be more whole, more right than they are. Um, And we're aware of the ways in which they're not, and we can't get away from this desire that they would be better, things would be right in the world. And now, of course, you could define that in a number of different ways. And depending on your story and what you see, you would define it differently. It might be falsehood to truth. It could be chaos to order. It could be brokenness to healing. It could be conflict to peace. It could be ashes to beauty. It could be a whole number of different things that would get at this desire for things to be right. I mean, you might even say we want chain restaurants to be gone and then foodie shops to just sprout up everywhere. That's how the world would be right, you know, uh, maybe if you live in Minneapolis. Um, But last week, verses 13 and 14, they were actually kind of all about this. The Apostle Paul wanted to lay out the kingdom, which is the biblical way of saying that place where all things are right with the world, where there is peace and goodness and beauty and truth. The place that we long to be is actually the kingdom Jesus has come to bring. And and if you remember... There was all that shift language, right? Darkness to light, captivity to freedom. There was um, neglect to love, being part of the beloved son's family. There was guilt to forgiveness. All of these dynamics of life as it should be in God's place with his blessing. But where does the letter go from here? If you think about where does the letter shift even after we've seen this picture of a new kingdom that Jesus is bringing, what shifts to the king himself? And I think it's because, and this is the simple truth that I'd like to spend not only today, but also next Sunday beginning to unpack for us very practically. The truth is that there's no kingdom without the king. There's no kingdom without the king. Meaning you can't have the blessings of that place unless you come to the spot of believing in that person, the king. And there is a pressure all around us, church, just like there was for the young Colossian church, to believe that Jesus is just but one of many spiritual guides to a better place. But Colossians is very clear. He is not one of many. He is the one. And without the king, there's no kingdom. And so what I want to do is I'll look at these verses. We're honestly going to major in only a few of them this morning and then pick up the back half next week. But I want to show you what it's like to start seeing the king and then what it would mean for you to be receiving the king. So point one, seeing the king. Point two, receiving the king. That's all we got today. Um, But first, let's look at the context, right? Because what it says is really important but we can't really accurately see what it says unless we sort of understand where it is, what's happening, the context. We have this young church at Colossae that's received this good news about Jesus. I wanna say we even have the description of that, seeing the king of creation. There's point number one. Here's the center point of the book. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, that's part one, first half, receiving Jesus the Lord. Part two, second half so walk in him. Verse 7 is all about what walking in him entails. So part A, receiving him. Part B, walking in him. That's the whole letter in a nutshell right there. And to walk in him means you will be rooted and built up and established in the faith. You will continue in what you've been taught, and you will abound with thanksgiving. All the descriptions of what it means to walk with the Lord. But this church has received Christ Jesus the Lord. I mean, Before this gospel globetrotter, right, this church planter extraordinaire, Paul traveling all around, gets to the point of how are you going to move forward, he's got to lay out so clearly for them where it is they started. And to do that, he's talked about the new kingdom. And then in this section, he's going to talk about the new king. And then before we move on in verses 21 and 23, he's going to talk about the new Colossae, new kingdom new king, new city. That's the flow of what's going on to this. And if you think about it, like that picture we saw last week of the power of the kingdom is incredible. Like it's, he breaks out into these amazing like, stories and images of what the kingdom is like. But here, as he begins to talk about the king, he literally breaks out in poetry. Like the shift is clear in the language. What we have here is probably a song. This is like an early gospel hymn. And we don't know if it had a Motown groove or a swing or shuffle. Like We didn't know how it felt, but I can guarantee you that the church sang it. That somehow these lines were composed so beautifully and poetically that it just burst forth from the heart of the church saying, He's Lord. So let me show it to you. All right, here's verse one. If you look at this, verse one and verse two have all of these parallels in them. Let me see if I can frame it out for you. So here I think is verse one. The Son, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes on to like wrap in verse in verse one. And then here comes verse two. He who is the beginning the firstborn from among the dead. Do you see the parallel? That phrase, he's the firstborn of all creation. And then the second phrase, he's the firstborn from among the dead. We'll talk about what it means to be the firstborn in a little bit. But those frame the start of verse one and the start of verse two. And there's even more overlap between the two. If you keep going, it goes, for in him, all things were created. And through him, they were created through him and for him. And the same sort of progression happens in the second verse. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, same word for for, for reconciling all things in heaven on earth to himself. So there's this like, there's, there's both a keyword of firstborn and there's also all these languages to, to cue in. There's a section here in verse one. There's another section here in verse two. And then right in the middle, something sticks out like a sore thumb. This is potentially the chorus. Maybe this is Paul's own addition to the hymn like it was not original. Perhaps it's the bridge. But like he, this is a different word in Greek, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. That's like, just stands out. I think as Paul's whole point in in the section, in the song, that this one who's the firstborn of creation, this one who's the firstborn from the dead, is before, above, greater than everything. And he holds everything together. And what? Not just everything, but he holds the church together. That's his message to this young church. So there's a bit of the song, all right? But let's look at this. I want you to see line by line the way in which the Apostle Paul is showing us the new king, because it's, it's lyrically, it's theologically beautiful, it's rich. But who is this new king? Well, the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, you could Easily have your mind go to the beginning of John's gospel and say, hey, Jesus is the one who has seen God, is with God, and reveals God. This is what John 1 says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So this is bare minimum though, right? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then somehow Jesus makes the invisible visible, right? If you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. If you want to see God, you've got to look to Jesus. If you want to understand God, you've got to look to Jesus. That's the, that's the plain sense of it. But that's not all that's going on here. But there's more here too, because if he is the image of the invisible God, that goes, ding, Genesis. Because we are made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 2 says, chapter 1 and then 2, made in the image of God, meaning we were made to reflect and to sort of resemble and picture God to the world. The ancient language there that's being picked up on is that kings in the ancient world would set up statues in all of the extending parts of their territory, And if it was, say, far from where the throne of the king was, this statue would be an image or a sign pointing to all who saw it that this is the rightful territory of the king, that the king is the one who is still in authority and over all of this place. And so our function as humans was actually originally to be that, that as we walked and lived through the world, We were supposed to tell and show all that there's a rightful ruler of everything, that there is a owner of this place, and that we point to his rightful reign. But Jesus is not just an image. He is the image, the ultimate image, the perfect reflection, the one who says, yes, there is a creator, and yes, he still reigns. The image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here means the heir, the ruler, the one with whom the state is going to be given. Everything belongs to him. The literal reading of this is sort of confusing, right? And in fact, in the third and fourth centuries, there was plenty of confusion as the church councils came together and started to sort out, hey, what does it mean that he's the firstborn? But if you read carefully all of the language about power and authority, what you see is that Jesus is not the fourth firstborn like my daughter Audrey, who's seven years old, is my firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense of he's the one who has the rightful ownership, the heir, he has charge over everything. He is the firstborn of creation, meaning he is over all creation as king. The firstborn has everything, and everything belongs to him because all things, as he goes on, were created by him, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, things visible, things invisible, everything natural, everything spiritual. Everything. Did I say everything? Everything belongs to him and was created by him. Everything that exists derives and comes from him. There's nothing higher. There's nothing better. There's there's nothing other. In fact, without him, there's nothing. From him, to him. You see, we like this young church can feel pressured and tempted to say no he's just but a teacher and a guide but the scriptures are so clear that he is yes a teacher and a guide he has come to teach us the way he has come to live in a, an example for us but he is not merely an instructor he is the one who's the initiator of everything the creator of all that exists which is to say that no power no leader, no spirit outpaces or moves beyond him, adds to him. It is to say that no teaching, no wisdom, no other religion, no insight can surpass him. It is to say that certainly you and me doing our own thing cannot get beyond or better than him. We have, in defining ourselves. And in living our way, often found ourselves unfulfilled. It's as if the world around us promises us that it's easy and almost the natural consequence if we just live for ourselves that we'll somehow be fulfilled in ourselves. And here we have Colossians saying, No, you cannot be fulfilled living for you, but for him. There's no kingdom without the king. There's no rescue without the rescuer no forgiveness without the forgiver there's no peace without the reconciler he is the king of all creation and wedged in here between these two verses i think is the probably the only bridge that cannot be repeated too many times cuz a bridge can be repeated too many times i mean let's be real but it's the bridge it's the chorus right he is better above higher than all things Right, He is the one holding together all things. He is the one who is the head of the body, the church. And my prayer, family, is that you have been seeing the king of all creation this morning. Such that you might desire to see what it means to be receiving the king of all creation. So let's talk about that. What changes for us when we receive this king? Right? When we embrace not just the, the goodness of the kingdom that we want, but also the king who can bring it. What changes? Well, I think it's sort of like finding your bearings. I mean, new bearings, not like you're stabilizing in terms of what's been, but to receive the king of creation means that your way of standing. Your way of moving in the world gains a completely new center of gravity. It means that, unlike gravity that you would find at sort of maybe like the you know the county fair or some type of carnival where you spin round and round and round in some machine, it sort of like makes you feel like floating and gravity has no pull on you. Like that—that's sort of the way the world can make you feel at times. Like you—you want to puke afterwards. Like that's not what I'm talking about in terms of new gravity. Like I'm, I'm talking about. Jesus making you not dizzy, but he's making you different. Anchoring you in such a way, it's the kind of gravity that feels like that pull towards home at times. The kind of gravity that feels like, hey, I just, I feel like I've been through something and all I want is to be with that person. Like I've had a hard day and I want, the hug of a spouse. I've had a hard year, and I want the hug of my dad. This kind of anchoring pull and gravity that comes as Jesus is your king. The gravity of Jesus is powerful, but yet gentle. And if you look back through these lines of the first verse, you'll see some clear anchors to what it's like. I mean, think about this. If it is true that all things were created by him and he is the firstborn, then receiving the king of all creation means that everything belongs to Jesus. Everything is his rightful possession. And what that means is that all of your life and all of my life becomes stewardship. Nothing is our own. Everything has been given. We take our very life, our breath, our financial means, anything that we have as an act of stewardship of the things that he has given. It all belongs to him. I mean, verse 13 tells you about the freedom of the kingdom. But, but the freedom of the kingdom is not freedom for your own sake. It's freedom for his sake. right? It's a freedom that's actually true freedom, that comes, of course, with you acknowledging that everything I have, even this sense of freedom, is a gift from Him. Everything belongs to Him. This is what the old catechisms say, right? Perhaps you've read or been familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It's first question, it's right out of the gate. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but I belong. Body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, it gets good. It goes on. Watch this. He has paid fully for my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must come and work together for my good and salvation. Therefore, By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily and willing and ready to now on live for him. That's an answer. That we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to the Lord. What are you still claiming as your own? I mean, how would your life change if if you began to think that you belong to the Lord, That that your finances belong to the Lord, that your work belongs to the Lord, that your hobbies belong to the Lord, that your relationships belong to the Lord, that everything you have and everywhere you go, you live as a steward of the king. So you start living for that great commendation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have stewarded what I gave you. Everything belongs to Jesus, but receiving the king of all creation means also that everything exists for Jesus, right? It's not just that Jesus is the rightful possessor of all things. It's that Jesus is the one who infuses purpose into all things. All of life becomes meaningful with Jesus, especially when we begin to live for him. Right? It's, it's not that all things are just from him. It's that all things are designed to live for him. I mean, our culture is obsessed with purpose. Right? Obsessed with purpose. You can, you can go to the grocery store, or the coffee shop, to the gym, your apartment complex, the club sports team, and everyone has a mission to change the world that could be your purpose. I mean, purpose is given, offered to us anywhere. Yet, by and large, we as a people lack fulfillment everywhere. It's because we've received from Him, but we haven't begun to live for Him. We haven't begun to see our unique life and story fit within the grand story of His and living for His great purpose. I mean, go back to the catechisms. Not this one, but another one. This is, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It starts with one simple question again. What is the chief purpose, the chief end, design of men and women, of mankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you were made for. And until you begin to see your life and what you do and who you are as existing for this great purpose of him and his glory, you will not find a kind of settled gravity and fulfillment. If the great church father, Augustine, said that our hearts are restless until we rest in thee, I think we could easily say our our lives are aimless until we start to live for thee. They're purposeless. They lack the depth and meaning that we hunger and were made for. We were made for Him. Number three, everything is subject to Him. Everything belongs to Him. Everything exists for Him. And everything is subject to Him. Remember that list? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, visible, invisible. Friends, that includes you and me we were not just meant to find purpose in Jesus. We were meant and we've been invited to find our rightful place with Jesus. Jesus is the one who has a rightful position of authority. And we live in a time, in a moment, where there is very much anti-authority sentiment. right? And rightfully so, because there's been quite an abuse of authority. In our recent history, but also throughout history, such that it's very natural for us to go, why should I trust him or her in authority? But Jesus is the rightful holder of all authority. And that means he has this immense, infinite capacity for blessing when we trust him and we find our place before him. We find our place before him Even in humility under him, it unlocks all kinds of blessing in our lives. When we say, yes, I will defer to you, Jesus, rather than demand my way, Jesus, it makes a difference. His jealousy for you means that he longs for your rightful place as his subject. He is master. We are servant. He is teacher. We are learner. He is king. We are a citizen. Listen to what Joe Thorne says when it comes to the jealousy of God for us. To say that God is jealous for you is to say that he loves you, desires you, and does not want to share you with other gods. His jealousy protects you from the false gods of the world that seek to use and exploit you. His jealousy is your, your good. Yes, his jealous love for you calls you to faithfulness. And does it limit your freedom? Yes. In some ways, of course, it does. But why would you want to be free to dishonor the Lord? Why? Where is there joy in finding temporal pleasure in idols that do not love you, cannot care for you, and will always hurt you? Your rightful place is one of loyalty and one of submission to the king. Last one. To receive King Jesus as the king of all creation means, of course, that we belong to him. It means, of course, that we are subject to him. It means, of course, that we um, find our purpose in him. But it also means, according to this great bridge, that we are sustained by him. When you receive Jesus as the king of all creation, you begin to have a center of gravity that says, he is the one who holds me together. And not just me, he holds everything together. He holds the individual and the collective. He holds the Christian and the church. He holds the cosmos all together Right now, as I'm praying at bedtimes with my little girls, there's one of the girls who always has to pray the Lord's Prayer. I think it's because when we pray another prayer, then she just wants to pray more prayers, you know? Um, but maybe she loves the Lord's Prayer, and, but she doesn't call it that. She calls it, Daddy, Daddy, we need to pray the daily bread. That's the phrase that she latches onto, right? We need to ask and thank the Lord for our daily bread. I'll receive that. That's good, I'll receive that, because we need that posture of we're sustained by him. The other day we prayed for our our daily French toast, but that's bread too, right? I mean, what we have and what we need all comes from him. As Paul says in the book of Acts, he gives us life and breath and everything. He don't need us, oh, but we need him. The king of creation is not mere life support for the dying. He sustains all who are living. Moment by moment, day by day. I love the way one scholar puts this. He says, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person. The resurrected Christ, without him, Electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. This is the cosmic Christ, also your present help. And I think that's the best picture. This kind of gravity that anchors and centers you on his goodness and his glory that everything you have and everything you know has shifted to find a pull and a home in the Lord that's what it means to receive him as the king of all creation that you are daily drawn toward king Jesus that you are happily recalibrated to king Jesus right that you are beginning to orbit around king Jesus that you are held together and sustained forever by King Jesus. As Paul writes elsewhere, for from him and to him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory now and forever.